what happened with Babel. There is a tower being built by a man called Nimrod. The nations think they can converge around this. God scatters them. When he scatters them, we fight from Deuteronomy 32.8. I got this thing happening. Sorry, guys. So when, when the nations were scattered to different corners, we find from Deuteronomy 32 8 that divine guardians, and by divine guardians we don't mean godly angels, we just mean celestial beings, angelic forces that are not necessarily godly, began to be appointed over them, or people sought them, and so these are the gods we are talking about. Different gods were different, established in different cultures, in different nations. This is what happened at Babel. And then God goes and he finds one man. And that one man's name was Abraham. And out of that one man, Abraham, he creates a nation. Only this nation is Yahweh's nation. And then God goes and begins to dismantle the gods of other nations. Who does he do it through? He does it through Israel. Why was he dismantling the gods of other nations? For different reasons. One of the reasons being, Satan has always wanted to steal, kill, and destroy. He's still doing it then, he's still doing it now. That is one of the reasons. Second reason, the second reason was, there was a group of people who roamed the earth now, they're dead, called the Anak and the Nephilim. You will find them in the Bible, and they needed to be exterminated. We we'll talk about why another time. But God uses Israel as a nation, as Yahweh's nation, because one man, Abraham, chose to serve him. He takes Israel as a nation to undo the gods that existed then. And those gods were not holy gods, but those gods were evil gods. This was what God was doing in the Old Testament. In the process, he began to establish himself as the Lord of heaven and earth. The whole idea of taking Israel through the wilderness into the promised land was to establish in the hearing of all the other nations of the earth that there is one God and his name is Yahweh and nobody else can stand against him. You come to Psalm 68 and there is a king called Og, the king of Bashan. Bashan was supposed to be one of the most powerful kings. God takes his mountain down. Egypt was the ultimate power. God takes down Pharaoh, but before he takes down Pharaoh, he takes down the gods of Egypt. We talked about that. Jihad has been going on forever, man. Only it isn't a new term. A holy war has been on since the beginning of time, the moment Satan was able to deceive Adam. The book of Revelation is the story of a holy war. Goliath and David is the story of a holy war. One champion facing another champion. There is no other God but the God of Israel. His name is Jesus Christ. There is no other God. Every other God starts with a small g. They may be divine guardians. They may be celestial beings. They may be angelic. But they ain't God. There is no commonality to the God of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. No commonality. All roads don't lead to Rome. All religions don't lead to God. They lead to powerful beings. But there is only one being who is all-powerful and is fully God who is creator. Everything else is created. And his name is Jesus Christ. Make no mistake. I know you know this, but it needs to be said. Because these are the things that it, as, we, as we progress even in this country, these are the things that will be hard to say. These are the things we'll have to be diplomatic about. And if you can be diplomatic about the creator of the universe, then anything can be compromised. 
So, in the Old Testament, Yahweh was at war with the gods of the nations, and he established his name through Israel, which he pulled out as a nation that would represent him. And this then is what changes at um, the upper room in Acts chapter 2, where the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost was the defeat of the forces of darkness. So let me go a step further. Every other God that starts with a small d, you want to call them Astarte, which was, you want to call it Zeus, you want to call it Artemis, you want to call it Baal, Zebul, you want to call it Molech, you want to call it Ra, what do you want to call it? There are tons of names associated with gods in the Bible. All these gods, with a small z, came to steal, kill, destroy. Because Jesus Christ said this, and I believe in Jesus Christ, and so do you. And he said, I have come to give you life and life more abundant. But Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And it doesn't matter what these gods take their name as now. There's nothing new under the heavens of the earth. It's the same. Any questions before we go on? So Jacob, where are you getting this view from? From the one book that I trust, and that is the Bible. Uh, they sometimes compete with each other, sometimes they work together. Um, while Satan's kingdom is not divided, it is not as if there is a lack of competition within these gods. As long as competition can result in stealing, killing, and destroying, competition is helpful for them. I mean, if a baby is lying on the floor and there are two dogs fighting, and the intent is to devour the baby, then it doesn't matter whether they are fighting each other as long as they intended to kill the baby. I know that's a grotesque picture, but that is exactly how it is. There is absolutely no respect for innocence or ignorance in the kingdom. This is why Christ is calling us suddenly in the church to train your hands for what? I'll show you some scriptures that will blow your mind. This is as real as it can get. So the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost was the declaration that the defeat of the forces of darkness and these other gods are, let me equate it, that's where I was going. These are the forces, these are the gods that come to steal, kill and destroy are the forces of darkness. Because there can't be anything else but one God who is holy, who is brilliant, who is creator, who is blazing in his purity. Everything else is created. So when the Holy Spirit comes, listen to what Jesus said before the Holy Spirit came. Actually, listen to what God said in Isaiah 61 before the Holy Spirit came. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to those that are spiritually bankrupt, to open the eyes of the blind, to set captives free, to open prison doors. This was a setting free of those that were taken captive. The coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was a declaration that the defeat of the darkness has been accomplished, but now I want to do a new thing. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 28. If I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom has already come. Which means this then, guys, that the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, is effected solely through the agency of, the person of, the Holy Spirit. He does it. And if he's here, then you know he's here because the kingdom has come and darkness has been defeated. Acts chapter 2 was actually when the Holy Spirit comes uh, at, on, the, on Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 2. It was actually Yahweh's plan or God's plan to reclaim the nation. God's plan to reclaim the nation. God's plan to reclaim the nation. 
It is God's plan to reclaim the nations. How do we know it? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And you shall be what? You shall have power. For what? To be my witnesses. To where? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. The coming of the Holy Spirit was the beginning of the reclaiming of the nations. Which nations? The nations that were scattered. Where? At Babel. What happened at Babel? Confusion. What happened? Nations broke up. What happened? Nations chose their own God. What is happening at Acts chapter 2? Once again, people are beginning to speak a language that everybody understands. Once again, people who are Parthians, who are Elamites, who are Romans, begin to come together to hear one God. Once again, they begin to hear Him being spoken of in a language that everybody understands. Once again, what was a divergence of Babel now becomes a convergence in a small upper room. It's a reversal of Babel. But it's a reclamation of the nation saying, enough! Let my people go. And that day an exodus began. Where in different nations, the Spirit of God began to send people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth, saying, go now, get my people back. Acts chapter 2 is so about reclaiming the nation. Acts chapter 2 is not about speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2 is not about prophesying. Acts chapter 2 is not about falling backwards. Acts chapter 2 is not about a Pentecostal experience. Acts chapter 2 is all those experiences, yes, but the focus is, I have come to reclaim what is mine. I've come to take back the people who were thrown out in the different nations at Babel. Now I've come to take them back. This is what it's about. So, if you say you are participating in the life of the Holy Spirit, you are naturally enlisting to be sent out. The New Testament church knew this. The nation's disinherited at Babel would be brought back. How? By the Spirit of God. How? Commissioning you and I with what? With authority and power to do what? To fulfill the Great Commission and to bring back Genesis 128. Go forth, multiply, replenish, subdue. This is what the Spirit of God came back, came for. So simple, guys, and it's so beautiful. Why did the Spirit of God come? Because He wanted to reclaim the nations. How? Through commissioning and sending out people. Who are those people? You, 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 and you. With what will he commission you with? With himself. What does that do for you? Authority and power. And then what are you supposed to do? Go wherever he tells you to. To do what? To bring back the nations and the peoples to himself. To fulfill what? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18-20. Go therefore and make disciples. And what else? Genesis 1, 27 and 28. Go forth, multiply, uh, replenish, subdue. This is what the Holy Spirit came to accomplish. Planning is still at work and we are part of it. How can you, how can a church not take part? Not how can missionaries not take part? Not how can pastors not take part? How can a church of people not take part? How can we, how can we prophesy and speak in tongues and not take part in the real reason? How is it even possible to live like that? It's such a contradiction, it's perverse. I'm not saying go to Vietnam. I'm saying go to Surrey. Sometimes it's tougher. Right. No, I said they heard it. They heard one message. That even though it was spoken in different languages, everyone heard similarly the same thing. This is just crazy, man. The, the same message of God that could not be heard because now they spoke different languages. They're hearing it all together. How did it even happen? Any questions? Isaiah 66, 18 and 19. Isaiah 66, 18 and 19. Isaiah 66, 18 and 19. It says that 
God is so smart. He talked about this ages ago. So it's not like he was springing something new on them. Isaiah 56, 18 and 19. And I, because of their actions and uh, 18 and uh, yeah, he says, and I, because of their actions and imaginations and about to come, gather all the nations and tongues and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of them who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans, to the Lydians, to Tubal, to Greece, to the distant islands that they have not, that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your brothers and from all nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. Brilliant. Here is God saying in Isaiah that a day is coming and I'm going to gather all the nations. I'm going to gather all these guys. Paul, after he finished in Rome, why did he go to Spain? He says in 2 Corinthians 10 that I have done all the work I have to do here. My work in Rome is complete. I'm setting my eyes on Spain. Part of the reason people suggest that he decided he would go to Spain because Tarshish was in Spain. Paul knew the Isaiah 66 prophecy that God will send people out to the farthest corners of the earth. Rome was taken care of. The Roman Empire was a known empire at the end of the earth. But now Paul says, I'm setting my eyes on Tarshish or Spain. He wanted a fulfilled prophecy, man. Do you want a fulfilled prophecy? Do you want to fulfill the prophecy in your own life? Do you want to fulfill the prophecy on this church? Do you want to fulfill prophecy at this? Do you want to fulfill what God is saying to you from the future? And if it is so, then once you finish things, we don't say, great, we finished it, wonderful, pat of ourselves on our back. We get up and say, oh God, give me that hill where the giants dwell. God is continuously moved. Respond with slides to the actual point of Yes, regardless of age. Guys, every life and inch of land has to be contested and reclaimed. Every life and inch of land has to be contested and reclaimed. But Jacob, that's not been our experience. We just pray and things happen. Praise God for the grace of God. <laughs> let us not be children, but let us move into more grown-up things. It's like a child saying, but I was always provided for. Mom and dad always gave me food, so I expected to happen. Look, you've grown up. You're 22. You left home. Now you've got to figure it out. And so this whole idea of contesting for life and land, life and land, Land needs to be taken because people live on land. Nations have to be targeted. This is not some political conquest. It is the reclaiming of lives. It's not Republican or Democrat. It is life. That in eternity will either see the face of God. Eight billion different ways that he loves them. Every child a precious one. You reclaim land, you will reclaim life. Contest and reclaim life and every inch of land in the face of hostile opposition. In the face of hostile opposition from a defeated enemy. In the face of hostile opposition from a defeated enemy. I said this last time. At the cross, Satan's power did not lessen. At the cross, Satan's power did not lessen. What lessened was his authority. His authority was stripped. His authority was stripped. He no longer has adequate authority. Luke 10, 19. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and no harm or hurt by any means shall come to you. Jesus said that. The head of the church crushed his, the serpent's foot under his heel. And because that is done, there is never going to be a day that the satanic realm will be able to prevail against the church. Never going to happen. Better still, according to Romans 16.20, Jesus said that a day is coming when I will crush Satan under your feet. But how can he crush something under my feet if my feet are planted firm here Hands up, worshipping the Lord, but never stepping forth. There's this beautiful song I was relating to somebody. It says uh, that 
If I don't come down from the mountain, the people in the valley will not know that they can go to the mountain of the Lord. It is the mission of the church. It is the mission of the church to go and enter Satan's house. What do I mean by Satan's house? Hey, how does the devil take people captive? Habits, addictions, other gods, religious beliefs, isms, money, diseases, sicknesses, bondage, demonization, mental situations, circumstances, lies, Strongholds. These are the things that you, you think you think we didn't come out of that. You think some of us are still not struggling with it. Where you can tell the truth to a person again and again and again and he will still stay in the light. How? How? How can light stare at you straight and you still believe in darkness? I've been there. The point is that it is the mission of the church, meaning our mission, to go and enter Satan's house, overpower him, strip him off his armor, and plunder him, carrying off his possessions. And what are these possessions? Money? Nah. People. People. Someone came into my life when I was caught up in heroin and marijuana and mushrooms. When I was close to trying to take my life every three months, not because I wanted to die, someone came and through speaking to me about Jesus Christ, broke open the doors that held me captive. And I walked out of it and I'm what I'm today. You look at Marcus's life, same story. Caught in drugs, set free. It can be something as lousy as drugs or it can be something as lousy as religion. Where you're so caught up in religion, Christianity I'm talking about, that you cannot escape. Leave alone other religions. And God has the ability to kind of break down this door because he sent someone to do it. Very rarely, very rarely does it happen through some kind of a bolt of lightning from outside. It is always through In the face of these truths, guys, if you and I choose to be neutral, then you will suffocate with dullness, with deception and death. It will suffocate you. I'm telling you something. You are so unfortunate in listening to this. Because after this, and as we go down this road over the next few weeks, if you do not decide somewhere in your heart that I will change, then three things will happen to me and to you. One, deep dullness. As in, not able to understand the word of God. Because, guys, here's the thing, eh? When God says something and you resist it, dullness begins to develop, eh? You become dull. Because God is speaking life and you're saying, nah, not this one. Nah. Eventually, you become dull to the word. Once dullness happens, the second thing that follows immediately after, when you keep resisting the truth, and it's in First Thessalonians, it says, dullness will be followed by deception. Where now because you've resisted truth, deception will come galloping saying, this fellow is foolish enough to keep resisting the truth. Let me try deception. He'll fall for it. And once dullness and deception happen, then the next thing is just slow decay. You are unfortunate in that. You're listening to this and coming back every week. You guys should have stayed away from your sakna. It's all Charlene and Joshua's fault. So, this is what will happen. If we do, because there's, there's no place for neutrality in this. This is a season where this is happening. It's like, I'm so grateful, man. I am so grateful for a God who challenges. I'm so grateful for a God who challenges. Let me show you a scripture that many of you haven't read or many of you have forgotten. Go to Judges chapter 3. This will, this will smarten us up. It definitely did that for me. Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. 
Let us settle the argument as to where we are and where God is taking us. Judges chapter 3. I'm reading from verse 1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experiences. So he left five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites, Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's command, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. Check that out. What's God saying? Hey, I'm going to leave some guys behind for you to battle. Because you have not learned what it is to indulge in what's called the art of warfare. I don't want cities following me. I'm the commander of the armies of Israel. I want guys who are tough enough to follow me at this point in your life. So are you ready to deal with this? Because if you don't, they become thorns in your side. When he does this and you call out for help, he'll say, I'll help you fight. He will not say, I'll help you escape. God left nations there, using them to test and train the descendants of Israel who had no battle experience in the art of war. Just think about it. He left them there so that the guys who did not know how to fight would learn to fight. Scary good. Unfortunately, again, I'm inviting God to do this, not just for me, but for the church. So unless you come and write a note saying, opt me out of this in your prayer, I will pray for you also. It's the only way we're going to learn that. The grace of God will give you victory. This kind of God will give you nations. Contest life and that. So put your game face on. Someone sent me a word saying, God is saying, put your game face on. Game face is, I mean, I'm not exactly conversant in uh, things like game face, because it's not every day that I go and play sports. Um, Game face is when uh, you do two things. You, you come ready to play and you come ready to win. It's both. You come ready to play and you come ready to win. You're not playing so that uh, for, the, for the fun of it all. No, like, like the ultimate extreme uh, Frisbee team does. They go there to play and win. So... <laughs> <laughs> That's putting on a game face. That's when you put stuff on your um, right under your eyes and um, do your own version of uh, what the uh, New Zealand uh, rugby team does, but your own version, not that. That's got its own potency that we don't want to talk about. Not today. See, it's a trifecta, guys. There's God is trying to achieve three things uh, in the church. One, he'll, he wants to give us battle experience. Two, he will check out battle experience through how obedient we are to what he says. And three, he'll see if we can walk while we walk through this path, whether we can walk it without being contaminated, without being polluted, without losing our purity, without compromising his values. Those are the three things he says to them. He says to them, listen, they were left to test his life to see whether they would obey the Lord's command which he had given to their forefathers from Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. See what happens. When obedience went out of the door, when compromise was made, then it doesn't matter that you're a battle-scarred veteran. It means nothing. With God, there are three things that have to happen in this church. Battle experience, the ability to stay uncontaminated, separate unto him, as in without compromising his values, 
And the third thing is obedience to whatever he says. Hey, Jacob, you've got $20,000 in Acts 29's account. Open the account, give it to the next church that you see down the road. Well then, we have to do it. But Father, then who pays me? Doesn't matter. You just do what I tell you to do. This is what obedience will look like. I'm, I'm, I don't want to say bring it on because when George Bush said that, he brought on, brought on a lot of trouble. I'm just saying, oh God, may it be done to your servant as you will. I'm not, I'm not like charging into battle because I don't even know what this looks like. But I'm glad you're behind me and when I look back, you better be there. Ephesians 6 12 puts it this way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that you're taking part in, but you are in a fight to the finish. That's how it puts it in the message. Ephesians 6 12. That our battle is not against flesh and blood, and nor is it an afternoon athletic contest that you indulge in for about two hours and go home. No, this is a fight to the finish where you need to gain ground. And every time you gain ground, what are we looking at for? We're not looking for treasures, man. We're looking for treasures, but those treasures in God's eyes, God would exchange everything, and He did. He exchanged the ultimate treasure, His Son, for mankind. Brilliant, eh? So when He says, I'll give you the treasures of darkness, He's not saying, there's some hidden wealth that I'm going to give to you, Betty. No. He's saying, there are treasures in darkness. Satan has plundered the most precious thing I've made, humankind. Oh, I hate using that word after, you know, who used to. Mankind. And so, Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.3 2 Timothy 2.3 Paul says this, No one who engages in warfare entangles himself in civilian affairs. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself in civilian affairs. What is God calling us to? He's saying to us, Hey, I know you got jobs to go to, families to take care of, uh, uh, parents to look after children to raise and I will help you with all that but set your priorities you set your priorities and all the things you're running after I will take care of but set your priorities and this will be repeated again and again and again for the next six to seven weeks guaranteed and perhaps after that too this is going to be so interesting And he's not going to give it to all of give us victories all at once. So go to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. It'll be bit by bit. As you show your strength, God will give you stuff to handle. Exodus 23. Guys, sometimes when you look at these scriptures, you get your answer for. I've been praying for long that this goes away or this comes. And why hasn't it happened? And in some of these scriptures, you will find your answer. Don't apply to every situation in your life. To some of your situations, you'll find the answer. Exodus 23, uh, verse 27 to 30. Look at what it says. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But look at this. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land will become desolate and wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I'll drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. So increase. As Jacob increases, more will be released because now he can handle it. One of the things that happens at conferences is you will turn up for a conference, there'll be tremendous, um, we will take the city, we will take the nation, we'll cast this demon out, cast that demon out, and then everybody goes home and they don't know what to do. Conferences are the easiest thing to do. It is how to work them out after that is difficult. Because that requires training and testing. The conference was just the announcement. Any questions before we go on? Okay. Life in God starts in the unseen, guys. We're talking about the unseen realm. Life in God starts in the unseen. Life in God, God starts in the unseen. Hey, did you know that when you were born again, according to Colossians 
you got transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. There was an invisible transfer that happened. You belonged to a dominion called darkness. And when you were born again, you were transferred into the kingdom of the sun. There was an actual ransom paid. There was an actual transfer in terms of who you belong to and who you belong to now. It happened. These are invisible realities. Do you know that something inside you transpired where your old person died? The old spirit that you had died. And that you received a brand new spirit. You didn't see it, but it actually transpired. No longer were you born of mortal sperm, but of immortal seed, according to 1 Peter 1.23. You were born again. These invisible things now have to be given visible reality. And God has provided for us ways in the Bible to show the world what is happening inside. One of the things that is supposed to happen every time someone gets transferred from one kingdom to the other is this whole idea of baptism. Baptism is spiritual warfare. Baptism is a loyalty oath that is being taken to pledge allegiance openly in a cosmic battle. Hear me again. Baptism is a loyalty oath taken by someone who is pledging allegiance in a cosmic battle that is happening, saying that I no longer, but I. I no longer. You know, in the church that I come from, and a few of us um, uh, were baptizing as children, which is a ridiculous idea, huh? being baptized as kids. Because no kid can control his bladder, leave alone his thoughts. I've seen kids peeing on the pastor's beard while being baptized because the cold water touched him. So don't give me this thing that that is legend. It is not. Today, I cannot tolerate falsehood, guys. So it's going to come out strong. And if you think it's aiming at you, it is, it is just at the falsehood of things. So when I was baptized, here's what would happen. And, 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 and listen, these baptism rituals that are practiced on kids are very rich in their content. But it is the wrong content. But it is very rich in content. And so when I was baptized as a child, here's what my dad and mom had to do. They would lift my left hand and they would say that I reject Satan. And then they would lift my right hand and they would say I um, choose Christ. This would be done with every child that is baptized. And it is very biblical. Because rarely do we realize that baptism is spiritual warfare, just like tithing is spiritual warfare. Every time you tithe or give, you are rebuking the devourer. Every time you get baptized, you are pledging your loyalty oath in a cosmic battle, saying, I choose and I reject. Just like the little child would have his parents lift their hands. Now the child has grown up and make a, can make a choice to choose or not to choose. I spoke to Brandon yesterday. There was an amazing word that was given by God to Brandon. I looked at the word and I thought to myself, no way, it ain't going to happen to Brandon. But thank God, God ain't me. Because the way God saw him and the things God started saying about him was so obvious that only God can do it and he's going to do it. Now I asked Brandon, hey Brandon, you got to you got to establish a symbol here on earth to let God know that you trust him and believe him. And one of the things that Brandon hasn't stepped into yet is baptism and he's getting baptized today. He's not getting baptized today because he got born again yesterday. He's getting baptized today because he's declaring, based on what God is calling him to, he has to set his feet firm and say, Oh God, here is my loyalty oath, my pledge in this cosmic battle. For what you're calling me into, I've got to be all ready with an open heaven above me because what he's being called into is impossible without the work of God. I have no idea that it was Pentecost Sunday. Well, I'm glad that he's choosing to be immersed, not just in water, but in the Spirit of God today. Setting a marker, that'll be a milestone for years to come.
So if there's anybody else, and it doesn't matter that you haven't brought a change of clothes, if you want to let yourself take a loyalty or declaring your allegiance in this cosmic battle, you are free to join us in the baptism school today. Just come up and we'll baptize you. As simple as that. Train your hands for war, guys. Train your hands for war. Contest life and land. Train your hands for war. Contest life and land. So here's the last bit I wanted to talk about. Um, ask God to begin to open your eyes eh, to the unseen. Ask God to begin to open your eyes to the unseen. There's two ways it will happen. There's two ways it can happen. And we'll end with that. Ask God to open your eyes to the unseen. We are people who live in the visible natural realm. But everything that happens, it's first initiated or provoked in the supernatural, invisible realm. Hey, why do why, why did people give sacrifices to God in other religions? Why did they do that? Why did Elijah meet with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Why were they offering sacrifices? Why were there still sacrifices being offered across the world? Blood sacrifices are still being offered across the world. I've seen it in Mongolia, I've seen it in India. I've seen it in different parts of the world. I hear about it in different parts of Canada. So why? Because anything that is done in the physical, where there is a shedding of blood, where there is an exchange of life, where there is a surrender of life, always provokes a spiritual response. Always provokes a spiritual response. Started long ago. Israel had surrounded... Uh, I think it was Jericho, I'm not sure. No, it wasn't Jericho. Israel had surrounded the city and they were about to take the city. You know what the king of the city did? He took his son, slaughtered him and threw him over the wall. Why? Because he thought a blood sacrifice will end things. Sacrifices and surrender of life has been going on for years. What does it do? Why do people still engage in it? It is very simple. It provokes spiritual responses. Elijah wanted to show them on Mount Carmel that you can cut yourself, you can put as many sacrifices as you want on this altar, but I'm telling you something. You will get nothing because there is only one God and His name is Yahweh. Choose who you will serve today. So, learn from those who can open spiritual life because the opening of spiritual life is critical in this thing and there are two ways we can look at this. One is, and I'm not talking about some kind of spiritual thing. I'm talking about something very real. So there are two options, guys. One is active supernatural. This is one kind of active supernatural. So we're talking about opening, opening spiritual eyes. So there's two ways we can look at it. One is active supernatural. The second is... Uh, The second is perceptive spiritual. You can use any words you want. I found these words helpful for me. But uh, you can use any words you want. One is active supernatural opening of eyes. The other one is called perceptive spiritual. And I'll explain both. The active supernatural opening of eyes is what you see in Second Kings 17. Second Kings 17. So Elijah comes and says, Open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There is an actual opening of eyes where you see things in the spirit realm that are unseen. Don't go craving for it, but tell God that, Father, as we enter this phase in our lives, will you show me what I need to see so that I know how to take care of it? Will you show me what I need to see so that I may take care of what I need to take care of? I don't go asking God to show me angels or demons and stuff like that. That's silly. It's absurd. It's not a biblical prayer. But I do ask God as I go into different nations or take care of different things, that, oh God, would you open my eyes so that I see the spiritual realities behind that which is visible. That's what happened with Elisha's servant. So the servant looks around and says, we are surrounded by chariots. And Elisha says, oh God, would you open his eyes so that he might see. And when he asks for that prayer, what happens? He begins to see. And he sees that the hills are full of chariots of God and horsemen. And the servant now becomes okay. It is such an advantage, guys. 
when God begins to trust you, we talk about that. Such an advantage when you begin to see the spiritual reality behind that which is visible, because now the solution becomes very simple. I've had sicknesses go away in seconds. I've got obstacles disappear. I've known what to do in a nation because God just passed the curtain for a second and you see what you need to see and you know how to deal with it. Guys, there's two ways this can be taught. Either it can be taught here saying, hey, let's start here. Or we can set the bar this high and say, let's keep aspiring for it. I'm setting the bar high so that we know what we're reaching for. Because we've spent 14 years learning all the basics. Now it's time to start swimming from the ropes. It's been ages since I went for a circus. I always wanted to be Tarzan. Did I ever tell you that? You're laughing way too much, big guy. <laughs> At all the wrong times. <laughs> okay. Luke 24 31 is another scripture where the um, guys on the road to Emmaus were sitting uh, with Jesus, talking with him, walking down the road, and suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Suddenly their eyes were open and he recognized, they recognized Jesus and then they um, disappeared from their sight. The point being this, guys, begin to ask for this. But do not ask for this for the thrill of it. You'll have to ask God saying, Father, as we, in, as we step into this phase in our life, will you begin to show me what I need to see about spiritual realities behind what is obviously visible so that I may be able to deal with situations that you place in my path. That's what I'm asking. I'm not asking for an experience. Please don't go experiential. It's really stupid and dangerous. I rarely use the word stupid unless it's really stupid. Then there is this idea of the perceptive spiritual. The perceptive spiritual is discerning the times and the ways of an invisible God through lives that have been authored by the Spirit, discerning the times and the ways of an invisible God through the lives of people whose lives are authored by the Spirit. That is, the Spirit of God has taught them enough. And now you have the ability to discern the times and the ways of an invisible God through their lives. You take it and then you begin to run with it. And I'll give you examples from the Bible. Take Enoch for example. Take Enoch for example. Enoch walked with God and then was not. It says so in Genesis 5, 21 to 24. He walked with God and then he was not. He's the only guy who was and then was not. At least with Elijah, we know that he was taken up in a chariot. But with Enoch, nobody knows. He was and then he was not. So how in the world did that happen? How did Enoch get to where he was? Take Enoch who walked with God and was not. Genesis 5, 21 to 24. How did it happen? Guys, here's the thing. Huh? When Enoch was born, do you know how old Adam was? 622. Do you know how many more years he lived? 308. Enoch probably learned everything about God from Adam. 308 years of walking with Adam. Learning what God was like. He was a man who, who yearned to walk with God like Adam did before the fall. Would have spent hours with his great grandfather. Telling him, teach me, tell me how this happened in Eden. And then this boy who was one year old, one year old when... Uh, uh, Adam was 622, begins to do the same thing that Adam used to do, to the point that he succeeded where Adam failed. Where he walked with God and was not. Man, I wouldn't have minded being Enoch. Because Adam fell, so I don't want to be this. This is a cost of power, and I have to till the soil by the sweat of my brow which is not my favorite thing to do. So, Enoch was a much better choice. His 
walk with Adam probably burst that intimacy with him. Huh? 380 years of talking to a guy. Apprentice with those who are intimate with God and adept at countering invisible realities. Apprentice with those that you know have an intimacy with God and are adept at countering invisible realms. Apprentice with them. This is the whole idea of having your eyes open through discerning ways and times through the lives of people that the Holy Spirit is offering. Learn from them. Apprentice with them. Don't learn from them if all they have is anecdotal experiences. If anecdotal experiences are not based on truth, on the Bible, and on biblical precedent, then you should not take advice from people who only have anecdotal experiences. Because there are plenty of them in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. Avoid them like the plague if their experiences are not based on biblical precedent, word, and spirit, do not take their advice. Because experiential teaching will inevitably lead to deception and demonic doctrines. Experiential teaching will inevitably lead to deception and demonic doctrines. When, when someone teaches you only out of experience and cannot back it up with the word, with the works of the Spirit, and with biblical precedent, as in show me in the Bible where this happened. If they cannot show you, then know that it's only a matter of time before their experiential teaching will end up in demonic doctrine and deception. Any questions? An apprentice with those who are intimate with God and adept at counting invisible realms. We gave heaven a choice. We called him home and we frightened him. We told him, this is what could happen. This is what we're dealing with. So you go home and decide whether you really want to go on this trip. So he went home and his prayer was, Oh God, if you want to stop me, please stop me. And so he came back the next Oh, you're here. <laughs> he came back the next day and he said, I was very sincere in my prayer that God stopped me, but since he didn't say anything one way or the other, I had no good reason to back up. <laughs> so, pray for a safe return. <laughs> yeah, he'll be fine. So the point is, the apprentice with, uh, this is the best way to learn, guys. The best way to learn. Abraham, though he was the son of idolaters, uh, his uh, forefathers used to worship idols. We read that, read about that in Joshua 24, verse 2. You read that Abraham's uh, dad and uh, forefathers used to worship idols. And yet, Abraham, though he was the son of idolaters, who do you think he received his knowledge of God from? Um, when he was born, Noah was 890 years old. And then Noah lived for another 60 years. And so this boy had Noah for... Uh, a tutor. He probably learned because they used to families used to roam together. He probably learned who God was from Noah. What was it like to be shut in a boat for 40 days? What was it like to build a boat? And by the way, how did Noah know there was a flood coming? Because Enoch had a son and he named the son Methuselah. What does Methuselah mean? That when he dies, the emission will come. In that name was enough evidence that there was a breaking of the underground fountains and a flood that was about to come. When did Methuselah die? When Noah was 600. And on that day that Methuselah died, the flood to come. This is the whole idea of learning 
from ones who have walked before, from the generation before. Noah wasn't surprised. Yes, he needed faith. But he wasn't standing in blind faith, man. He knew what his grandfather's name was. He knew that when that man died, the flood would come. But he didn't know when that man would die. So he starts building the ark. It takes him 120 years. From when Noah, from when Methuselah was 480 to when he died was 600. Noah was building an ark and then when he finishes the day, Methuselah dies, the flood comes, but Noah is ready. And here is Abraham, who had his son at 99, who realized he was not going to have an heir at 75. But 15 years before that was when he buried probably Noah. And Noah told him how this God restarted the universe. How everything was wiped out. How the raven went and did not come back. How they set up an altar. How God put this beautiful thing called a rainbow in the sky. How God met him. How God talked to him. How God restarted creation. And here is Abraham probably. Probably. And I'm saying probably because there's no biblical evidence for this. Probably learning from Noah. Crazy, eh? Guys, look to learn, dare to teach. Huh? Look to learn, dare to teach. Look to learn. As in, look forward to these two ways of looking into the invisible one by asking God, saying, Oh God, would you open my eyes so that I might see invisible realities behind that which is visible so that I can deal with things as you want me to deal with them. Second, learn by apprenticing with others who have both an intimacy with God and are adept at countering the unseen realm. And the more God can trust you to go through things and not write a book or share it in a testimony indiscriminately, the more he will be able to show you things. That's the last uh, thing I want to say. The more God will find out that you have this ability to see things that he's showing and not talk about it, not write a book about it, not share it in a message, not preach it, not immediately blabber about it, the more likely it is that God will begin to show you these experiences because he knows that you're not in it for the, you know what, I had an experience. On that happy note, we shall end. Any questions? More questions? How does it glorify him? To me, it's glorified in the results. So, um, Elijah knew what was happening. He did it for the sake of the servant and so we hear about it. But, I mean, just think of this guy for a second. Huh? Imagine the experiences Paul probably had. Took off a, a, a snake off his arm, brought down Artemis in Ephesus, had an attack happen to him, took care of it, once was left dying, gets up and walks back. If Luke was not keeping account, you would not hear about it because Paul didn't tell anybody about anything in his life. Thank God for Luke. Had Luke, Luke not written a second account to his dear Theophilus saying this is what happened
Jacob. 